Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello and welcome to the 2020 NFP election podcast series. I'm Chase Cannon and I'm on with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal team. And we're here on the podcast to talk about some of the issues that are coming up through the election process here. We're a little more than four weeks away from the election day itself. And we have just concluded watching the first presidential election debate So that is in the books. And uh, we wanted to revisit Joe Biden's healthcare platform here for the Democrats. In other words, what would happen in the healthcare world if uh, Biden is elected president? We did briefly touch on this in a prior podcast on our benefits compliance podcast series, but we wanted to refresh it on this series, particularly now that we're closer to the election and we we were past this uh, first presidential debate. Suzanne, can you give us some background here on Joe Biden's plan? Yes, and and true, we did touch on it previously. We are going to discuss it again because during the debate, they did bring up his plan. So we wanted to highlight some of the points of the plan. As you would expect, we, you know, it is light on detail right now. Um, That's to be expected at this point in the process. But the first point is is that he will add a public option. Again, few details, um, but we can look at various proposals in the past and some were put forth by Bernie Sanders, by Beto O'Rourke, for example, they endorsed um, specific legislation. I will say that polling has consistently shown that Americans reject the idea of a public option that abolishes the private system. And it seems like Biden is along with that polling. He's mm-hmm. an expressed a desire to build on the Obamacare um, platform, so to speak. And so we can assume that his public option would live alongside any private market and compete with the private market. And we can also assume that it's something different from Medicare because he's also discusses the expansion of Medicare to age 60, which is something we'll dig into a little bit. Um, but again, we have very few details to go on other than it's a government insurance plan you would buy within the construct of the existing healthcare marketplace. And so what that means is that when a person goes into healthcare.gov to select his or her insurance plan, one of the options that would sit alongside the private options would be a federally run public option. Um, part of the criticism with this option is that it won't, you know, it will do very little to restrain the growth of healthcare costs. So it's focusing simply on the payment of healthcare rather than the delivery of, of healthcare in a way to restrain costs. So, so it's true that government will likely pay providers less than the private market. And so that's where they get some of their cost savings and it would likely equate to lower um, premiums. There are some concerns with paying the provider market less, which we will dig into a bit. Um, but there's several studies that have shown that there's a negative impact on the provider market when you do reduce revenue overall. And so some of the hospital systems, in fact, they did some very specific surveys following some of the, the different options that were put forth by the candidates previously. And they found that some of the hospitals would actually have to close um, given this much lower revenue um, income from a public option. So we have to look at whether that would impact access and, and look at what that means in the provider market. So while we don't know whether the public option would be self-sustaining, meaning it's, is it going to be paid for only through premiums that are paid by the enrollees, or is it something that's going to require um, the federal government to subsidize, which means, of course, higher taxes for those who are paying taxes within the U.S. And so we want to look into that when some of the details come out. So 
what we also don't know is whether it will actually be run by the government itself or it will look to the private market or the states in some other manner to run it. These are some of the questions we have, and you really want to watch for the details in this area to be able to see how it would impact either access, impact our taxes, impact um, the efficiency through which the, the program is run. Right. And so those details really do make the big difference on whether it's palatable or not. But what, what are some of the advantages of a public option like this? Well, if run properly, we could expect the administrative cost would be lower because, again, the government's not in the game to, to make a profit, whereas the private market is. So for, for individuals, the coverage would also be portable. Um, so that they could take them with them if they went to another job. So that's, a, that's an idea that many individuals had want, wanted. Um, the idea, though, that the public option would benefit the uninsured is questionable. When you look to the Congressional Budget Office, that's the CBO, which is allegedly neutral. In 2013, it scored a public option added to the ACA marketplace, and it found that um, the answer is that there was no advantage in terms of covering the uninsured. It estimated, in quote, it would have minimal effects on the number of people who, were, who would be uninsured. And so therein lies the problem. So the devil is in the details, so to speak. So we want to identify what the public option is sought to accomplish, what are the goals of it, and, and see if it's, if it's not to expand access to the uninsured, what is it there for? Uh, but what are some of the challenges with implementation and then just overall with the public option? The main challenge is sustaining it actuarially. So it, identifying what the premium rates would be without significantly increasing taxes is, is definitely a challenge. And we can look through some federal examples, some state examples um, to show the complexity of that. We should just look to the Medicare program. There was a program called the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act, and it was Congress's attempt to create a fully self-financed system. It was unveiled in President Reagan's 1986 State of the Union Address, and it changed not only some of the benefits, but the financing behind it. Um, and without going into too much detail, beginning in January of 1989, beneficiaries were no longer going to be responsible for co-payments for hospital stays in excess of 60 days, and they added an out-of-pocket cap on Part B premium expenditures. The beneficiaries would have to finance the new program through a supplemental premium. So again, the idea was that the financing would have to come just from premiums and not from taxes. And there was significant backlash from beneficiaries who had already gone out and purchased a private supplemental plan and had no intent on dropping that plan. Um, so the idea was that they wanted to try to insure against catastrophic risk, but um, the elderly did not want to give up their Medicare plan. And there was this famous scene in the late summer of 1989 when House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dan Rostentowski was mobbed by a bunch of angry senior citizens, and he had to flee in his car to get away from them. So um, shortly after that, the Deficit Reduction Act of 1989 repealed most of the MCCA, and it was just 16 months after its initial passage into law. So that was an example of the federal government attempting to have a self-sustaining program and failing because of the additional cost that was going to be um, placed on individuals. Whether they understood how it actually worked or not is, is up in, is in question, um, but nonetheless, too much pushback, and so they had to disband the program. Yeah, so a rough experience at the federal level there, uh, including some mob scenes, uh, but what about the states? We know the states have tried this, at least a few of them, so what, what about the state experiences with some type of public option? Yet again, this just shows the complexity and the challenges with really identifying how to finance. This is the big question. How do you finance a public option? So let's look, first of all, in Tennessee. In the 1990s, they obtained a waiver to conduct a 
It was a program that was intended to expand coverage to the uninsured, and they shifted more than 800,000 individuals from the traditional Medicaid program over to TenCare. And then they expanded the program to cover 500,000 who were not Medicaid eligible, but were uninsured. And what we found is that, or what they found, I should say, is that the total annual budget increased from $2.64 billion in 1984 to more than $8.5 billion by the time they hit 2005. And there was essentially no change in the number of participants enrolled. So they, at various times throughout their program, they hired McKinsey and Company to do some audits and some evaluations. In late 2003 and early 2004, they had two different reports that evaluated the financial sustainability of TenCare and made recommendations so for future actions. Ultimately, TenCare had to remove about 190,000 participants and they had to impose limits on the number of prescription medications in order to um, remain financially viable. Um, and then when, if we looked at Kentucky, for example, in 1984, they enacted the Kentucky Healthcare Reform Act and it included a public option with the goal of universal coverage and more affordability. But it, what happened is it, it actually worsened over time. And it's true that some of the very sick people were eligible to purchase health insurance for the first time, but the cost of the health insurance skyrocketed and it forced many small businesses and individuals out of the market altogether. And so by 1996, you had fewer Kentuckians that were covered than before the reform was passed and, and over 40 insurers pulled out of Kentucky. So mass exodus of insurers and after that, only Blue Cross and the Kentucky Care remained. And so the plan basically bled the state treasury and eventually the public option had to be scrapped. We know that some of the costs change depending on the location, right? So these are Kentucky, Tennessee are kind of in the middle of the country. But I understand a couple of the other states on the uh, coast tried this in uh, Maine, Hawaii, and uh, Washington. Did that make a difference at all? Well, Maine also, you know, they, they in 2003, they set up Derigio Choice with the goal of insuring 130,000 uninsured Mainers in five years. Again, the idea was to expand to the uninsured market. And what they found was that they really never insured more than 15,000 people at any given time. They, uh, you know, over the course of the plan, it was more than 15,000, but at any given time, there was no real savings in the system. Um, they were going to provide competition along the private market, and they claimed that the more people enrolled in the program, the more savings in healthcare costs and health insurance premiums, but they were not able to um, affect this program well. And so the funding came from a tax on Maine health insurance carriers, and then it, then they had to add a tax on beer, wine, and soda, and then just a straight tax on health insurance claims altogether. And so over time, they had to borrow like $25 million from the state's general fund. And ultimately, after 10 years, it had to be scrapped. So again, it's a, it's a challenge with identifying where the savings will come from, where the funding will come from, and being able to, to really expand to those who are uninsured. In Hawaii, in 2009, they created Kiki Care for the uninsured children. They People stopped buying the private insurance, and they went into Kiki Care, and within seven months, that program ran out of money and was dismantled. So that didn't even last a year. And then more recently, I think we can look at the state of Washington. Now, that has actually not been implemented, but it, it will be one to watch. Um, I bring up Washington only from the fact of looking at how complex it is and trying to bring down the rate of premiums if it's a federal or, excuse me, if it's a state, a government option. Um, what they found was that they wanted to set the, the reimbursement rates at Medicare levels, and they had such pushback from providers that they had to keep increasing what that 
provider reimbursement look like? And so now it is set at a cap of 160% of Medicare rates and a floor of 135%. That's still lower than what's available in the private market, which is generally running around 175% of Medicare rates. So we should see that premiums are lower in Washington when this is is available in 2021. Um, one of the biggest difference between the federal public option and Washington's version is that the state isn't administering the program by itself. It's looking to the private health insurance market. So we may see that at the federal level as well. Maybe they will look to the private insurance market to administer any public option that they, they put forth. Right. And that's one thing that Biden sort of highlighted in his response in the debate was that he really does want to keep private insurance in the market, right? That this is not a full replacement uh, that may have been proposed to the further left there with Bernie's plan. Yeah, it's, uh, it certainly seems like at this point they're not going that far. Right. So let's move on to another key piece of Biden's proposal, which is to lower the Medicare age to 60. Right now it's at 65. Tell us a little bit about that one, Suzanne. Yes, in Biden's words, he says it reflects the reality that even after the current crisis ends, older Americans are likely to find it difficult to secure jobs. I think there is a mm -hmm. question that that's in reality because we do find that most um, Americans who lost their coverage were not in the age 55 to 64 um, age group. They were in the younger younger market. But nonetheless, again, few details except that the new federal costs associated with this option would be financed out of general revenues so that it would protect Medicare trust fund, um, which does mean tax revenue. So we, we have to see what that looks like. He said he would primarily start by raising capital gains tax on those earning more than a million dollars. And so again, we just have to see how that plays out. According to Avalier, close to 23 million will become newly eligible under this program of lowering the age to 60. Of that 23 million, 13.4 of those are currently covered by employer-sponsored insurance. And what we might find is that many of those workers who are um, under employer-sponsored coverage would will want to remain there predominantly because of drug coverage under employer-sponsored coverage is generally better than what you find under Medicare. The formularies are usually broader, the co-pays are typically lower, and because prescriptions are one of the biggest costs for those on Medicare, I think that you'll find that many of those who are newly eligible will choose to stay within the employer-sponsored market. We have the public option that we've discussed. We've talked about Medicare coming down to age 60. That brings us to another topic of Biden's plan, which is to expand Medicaid for low-income Americans. What does Biden's plan say there? Yeah, again, the details are limited, but he said that he would like to include a premium-free option for the expanded for those states that did not expand Medicaid under the ACA, which was around 14 states. So there's no details on how that would be funded, presumably through federal taxation. But again, it's just something that we need to see. Um, so we'll have to dig into that further and dig into those details on future podcasts when, when that information is available. Right. Well, what are your thoughts generally on it, sort of this expansion of uh, Medicaid? Well, I have, I've got several concerns. For one, the Medicaid and Medicare programs have been impacted by the pandemic due to a loss of revenue, both at the federal level and the state level. So the Congressional Research Service projected that Medicare would become insolvent by 2026. We've known that for some time. But when the pandemic is factored in, the analysis of the revenue gap funding that for Medicare shows that it could become insolvent as early as this year or next year in 2021. So that's, that's obviously a concern if we're relying on that program. And then at the state level, many of the states are showing solvency issues with states projecting a 10% reduction in revenue in 2020 and a 25% reduction in 2021, which is interesting. We think of the pandemic predominantly hitting in 2020, but many are showing 
um, you know, loss of revenues even greater in 2021. And mm. so because of this, I'd rather see more of the support focus on employer-sponsored market. And, and here are some of the reasons why. Um, the studies have showed that employers spend 60% less than Medicaid on a per-person basis. Now, some of that variance, of course, could be due to the risk of the Medicaid population. Um, mm-hmm. It could be due to government waste. It could be due to lack of innovation. We don't know. There's also, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, employers contribute an average 79% of private industry workers' premiums for single coverage. So if you uh, you have the employer market contributing significantly to the cost of healthcare. If you remove that, obviously it goes back on the individual or on taxpayers. You have um, employer-sponsored market dominating the private insurance market, accounting for over 90% of the market. So if you damage that market, you're going to impact millions who work in that industry. You also see that the employer-sponsored market is a model for innovation to improve the health of not only their employee population, but but overall, and so um, certainly employers that are self-insured have a vested interest in the health of their employees, really as all employers do, but even more so in the self-insured context. And so they look for innovative ways to drive costs downs. So, and finally, the surveys show that employees are generally satisfied with their employer-sponsored health plan. According to a recent study by American health insurance providers, over 70% fell into that category, that being generally satisfied. And the drivers of that satisfaction came from uh, the fact that health plans have comprehensive coverage, they're affordable, they have choice with their providers, plan consistency with benefits and providers, and then also free preventive care. Some of that, of course, you would assume would be in a government plan, especially the free preventive care. But there's a general overall satisfaction with those who are enrolled in their employer-sponsored coverage. Right. And we've talked on other podcasts about just that stability of the employer market and, and the uh, employee satisfaction at such high levels that why disrupt that um, if it's working well, just keep it going. One way that we've also talked about helping support the employer model is to subsidize COBRA coverage. I don't think that's part of uh, Biden's overall plan, but it is coming up as we talk about responses to the pandemic in 2002, the 2009 economic downturns, there was legislation that provided for COBRA subsidies. And so we have kind of seen phase four, this most recent version of legislation um, hit some snags recently, but we've also heard a little bit of uptick in discussion about maybe uh, reviving that. So uh, I think that would be important. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Suzanne? No, I think that that's, a, that's an important way that we can try to, to maintain the employer-sponsored market. Um, you know, again, the, the public option is based on the premise that the government officials can best control and manage the healthcare system, and it's not really focusing on the cost of delivery. Um, and so we, we just have concerns that it would pr- prove to be too costly. It would undermine consumer choice and competition in the healthcare system. So we'd like to see the focus, again, on the employer-sponsored market for all of those reasons that I've mentioned. COBRA subsidies would be one way to help facilitate um, individuals staying within that market. Right. So we will continue to monitor that and see if there's any further discussion Um, that may come up in the debates as part of the response to the pandemic as well, which is obviously not directly related to uh, health law or health policy, uh, but we'll continue to monitor that. We'll see if there are any additional details released on 
uh, either platform on the Democrat or the Republican side when it comes to health, uh, health issues. Uh, but thank you for walking through Joe Biden's plan here. That's great information to know as we continue through the election season and creep closer and closer to election day in November. So thank you, Suzanne. And uh, thank you all for taking the time to listen. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode in our new Washington Update 2020 election miniseries. We will keep you informed and up to date on the candidates and their platforms as we get closer to the presidential election. 